You are now listening to It's All Relative, the show where we discuss crime and its interaction with the family. This is part two of a two-part series on Sally Horner's story. I am your host. My name is Kaylee. Here's Elvis to set the mood, and I will see you on the other side. Come on and dance with me Are you about the cutest thing I ever did see Hey little girl, I'd like to take you home Come on, come on, come on, I want you for my very own All right now Just a side note, finding music for this story was unsettling. As you may imagine, the subject matter only lent to songs whose undertones give me the heebie-jeebies. God. Danny Elfman has legitimate reasons to be embarrassed about his time with Oingo Boingo. Look it up if you dare. But I digress. When Sally Horner went off to the Jersey Shore with her friend's family for a week, her mother Ella Horner was wary. But Mr. Warner had assured Ella that Sally would be no problem, that he and his wife had plenty of room in their Atlantic City flat. So Ella saw her daughter off at the bus station, not even getting a look from the man next to Sally on the bus. Sally called and wrote from Atlantic City, talking about all the things she was doing and all the fun she had had. Ella was a seamstress, and the money she made barely paid for their apartment. She was glad her daughter had this kind of opportunity, kind friends willing to let her share in their good fortune. But Sally called to say she wanted to stay another week, and then another. Then the contact stopped altogether for more than a month. With her last bit of contact, after being gone for a month and a half, Sally told her mother she didn't want to write anymore. It took this last piece of information to finally knock some sense into Ella. None of this was right. She finally called the police. Amazingly, the return address on the envelope was the real address where Sally had been staying. The police showed up ready to act, but they were too late. Fleeing the rooming house, they would soon learn, was a man called Frank LaSalle, a pedophile who had fairly recently come out on parole for the rape of five girls. You may remember from the previous episode that Ella raised first Susan and then Sally without really telling them about their fathers. Sarah Weinman, the author whose story is the primary basis for these two episodes, never explicitly says that this family doesn't talk about things, but it is at every instance implied. Part of the reason that Frank was able to abscond with Sally was her naivete, and this not-talking continues with Sally's disappearance. Quote, again, this is from The Real Lolita by Sarah Weinman. Sally's family took the waning public interest as a sign that it was better not to speak of her disappearance, even among themselves. Her absence was a low thrum, ever-present but unacknowledged. End quote. Is this how Ella was able to convince herself for six full weeks that Sally was really having a family vacation, despite all the red flags waving fully unfurled in her face? And look, this was not an abnormal way of living at that time period. You did not bring out all the family skeletons to people outside the family, and very often you didn't talk about any skeletons within the family either. 
Despite this, Ella still did things that showed her hope that Sally would come home. She made sure she was able to keep the lights on and the telephone connected as long as she could. She stayed at the house until long after it had become a waking nightmare, living in the space that used to be filled with Sally's laughter. At the six-month mark, the local paper interviewed her and she told them how she put up the Christmas tree, despite Sally not being there, to make sure there was a warm welcome should she come home with Christmas on the horizon. After that article appeared, public interest moved on to other salacious crimes, and Sally's family moved on with life. Al and Susan, Sally's sister and brother-in-law, ran a greenhouse. Sally had given birth to Sally's niece, Diana, about one month after Sally went off to the shore. Sally had been excited to help tend to Diana, but now Susan was left with the task. I'm not saying she shouldn't have been anyway, nor am I saying that she should. It just meant that, without Sally to help, Susan could not work at the greenhouse very much, leaving most of that work to Al. They kept busy. By 1950, Ella was unable to pay the phone bill, so when Sally tried to phone her mother, the line was disconnected. Instead, Sally called the greenhouse and spoke first with her brother-in-law and then her sister. Then she went back to the trailer she shared with Frank LaSalle, to wait. After the call ended, Al wasted no time in contacting the Camden County Police Department. After playing a rather real game of telephone, Sally's whereabouts were placed in the hands of the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office in California. One of the criticisms of the position of sheriff is that it is an elected position. This often results in a sheriff who ran a great campaign but actually knows very little about policing. This was not the case with Howard Hornbuckle. He had been sheriff by this point for three years, but this was after a long career as a cop, both a detective and a captain. Hornbuckle welcomed the FBI's help and there was a host of law enforcement present when three members of the sheriff's department found Sally alone in the trailer. She was terrified he would come back and try to run with her again, even with the gaggle of lawmen milling about the trailer park. They took her to a detention center, which sounds horrible considering her ordeal, but I suppose they had no real other place to put her. Sheriff Hornbuckle was the one who heard her story, with all the hysterics and tears. Then, when she'd gotten it all out, she said she wanted to go home as soon as possible. The feds had stayed behind at the trailer park to get LaSalle. He walked off the bus at one in the afternoon and was apprehended without a problem. In fact, at the jail, he claims he was really Sally's father and that her mother had known where they were all along. Quote, LaSalle elaborated his alternate reality. I took her when she was a little thing. I'm the father of six kids, three by this wife, Mrs. Horner, and three by another wife. I didn't take Sally from Camden, but from New York. It was four years ago, not two. She kept house for me, and she had money and freedom. The authorities that LaSalle claimed could have found him at any time. He had business in Dallas, after all, and always had cars registered in my name. When he was done protesting his innocence, LaSalle refused to speak further. End quote. The problem with Frank LaSalle came to be that legal systems were vying to be the one to try him. Wanting to get the process started, California arraigned him almost immediately. Problem for Sally was that she had to testify at the hearing. The rules for victims, in particular juvenile victims, were very different in 1950. They tried to make Sally go to the courtroom by herself. Sally panics and she insists on having a worker from the detention center come with her. This simple kindness that would be expected, if not required today, 
was treated as if it were a bit of an imposition. Poor Sally had to sit within four feet of Frank in the courtroom. When she was called to testify, the first thing she says is that she wanted to go home. Once the hearing was over, Sally returned to the detention center to worry about whether LaSalle would go free. She also worried about whether her family would want her back after what she'd been through. She was there for several days before Jersey authorities arrived to escort her back home. And it's time to address the elephant in the room. Sally being worried her family wouldn't want her is not an uncommon feeling for victims. For Sally, emerging from her capture in 1950, the situation was more fraught than many today understand. When Ella was interviewed six months after Sally was taken, just before Christmas, she was on record as saying the following, quote, And as she told the Inquirer, the moment Sally walked back through the front door, she would not be punished in any way. Whatever she has done, I can forgive her for it, if I can just have her back again, end quote. How does this type of sentiment affect Sally once she comes home? To be clear, I am talking about the assumption that she is responsible for her own kidnapping in any way. There is a plethora of analyses dealing with the psychology involved in these kidnap scenarios. True, if Sally had been a more savvy child, she may have seen through Frank's ruse right away, stopping the whole ordeal before it began. But the neurological state of a child of 10, which is the age when she met Frank LaSalle, along with the psychology of one so naive, means that Sally cannot be held responsible for her own victimhood. I understand that Ella may fear Sally felt guilty. Similar victims had felt guilt for their situation, even if they shouldn't. Ella wanted Sally to come home, guilt or no. But it is frustrating to have that be the quote in the paper, and there be nothing about the guilt of the man who actually caused the situation. Later, when Sally is officially located, Ella is quoted in the media saying this, she was chiefly concerned with Sally's safety. I just want her back and to see her again. I am very thankful, and I will be a whole lot more thankful when I really see Sally, end quote. And then she ruined it again with the following statement, quote, Whatever she has done, I can forgive her, end quote. Ugh. The press then went on to ask her about Frank LaSalle. All Ella could squeeze out were the words, That man. Susan was there as well, and she had no problem with her words. Quote, I hope that man, LaSalle, is properly punished. He should receive life imprisonment or the electric chair. End quote. I mean, yes? And the course of the American justice system did run smooth, if but very slow. New Jersey representatives had to grind through the official process of the state of California to get LaSalle extradited and to be allowed to transport Sally home. Ten days after she made the call to the greenhouse from Ruth's trailer, Sally and her escorts boarded a flight for Philadelphia. Sally wore new clothes purchased by the detention center's budget. This was her first ever plane ride. Poor Sally had a lot of firsts in her life since she stole her first ever item from Woolworths. When the plane landed, it was all Sally could do not to jump through the other passengers to get to her mother. It would be a while before the word paparazzi was used for the vulture media, but the paparazzi was out in full force. The ravenous wolves will get their story. However, the justice system of today does do a better job of protecting victims. Once the trial was over, Ella was advised to change everyone's names and move away. 
Sally would have been a Jane Doe or Roe today. Her identity would have been kept as much a secret as possible. She would have had a legal guardian assigned while she was waiting to be returned to her mother, and that guardian would have gone in with her to the courtroom as a matter of course. Sally may have been able to, tes to testify by video or video conference or in camera in the judges' chambers. The courts did try somewhat to keep Sally safe. Poor Sally, all she wanted to do was go home, but on landing in Philadelphia, Sally was told she was going to have to stay in the children's shelter until the trial was over. Ella was the only family member to be allowed to visit so that Sally remained in a calm mindset. You could easily argue, though, that the court was trying to protect the evidence, not Sally. Keeping her in custody did act as a protection between Sally and the outside world, but it also made sure that their star witness was not going to go anywhere. Then, some bit of a miracle occurred. It took two days by train to transport Frank LaSalle back to Camden, New Jersey. Upon arrival, Frank suddenly confessed. He said he was guilty and wanted to start his consequences right away. When asked why he was confessing, he said, I want to avoid this girl any further unfavorable publicity. Sally only had to be in court for the plea hearing. Frank was sentenced at that hearing as well. He got 30 to 35 years for the kidnapping charge, 2 to 3 for the original abduction charge, and an extra 2 to 3 for breaking his parole. He would need to spend three quarters of that time in prison before he would be eligible for parole. He was taken to Trenton to serve out his sentence. Frank LaSalle was not charged for the rape nor the sexual assault. And I hate everything about that. Sally had to spend one more day in the care of the state. Then she was released into her mother's care. Mother and daughter made their way home with camera bulbs in their face. Everyone knew what had happened to Sally, and going back to my previous point about her presumed guilt, a large part of the Jersey population saw Sally like an egotistical alpha sees an errant beta, kick him when they're down. Sally was either an actual whore or just someone with the bad luck of fitting the bill close enough to pick on. For the summer, Sally stayed with her sister. It seems to have been good for her. But when school started, girls whispered about her in the corridors, and boys gave her unwanted looks and suggestive remarks. Some people didn't believe that she had been kidnapped and raped. She had one friend. Her name was Carol. They were friends throughout junior high. Sally liked outdoors. She liked the shore. The August before their freshman year of high school, the girls spent the weekend in Wildwood. Wildwood is on Cape May and is part of the Jersey Shore and a popular place in the relentless heat of a Jersey summer. The girls took the bus. Carol and Sally were 15, but, like every New Jersey teen, had fake IDs saying they were 21. Unlike most teens with a fake ID, these were mainly to get them into clubs so they could dance, not drink. It was in Wildwood that Sally met Eddie. Eddie was 20, kept his hair in a high pompadour, and had his own car. Sally fell head over heels. She told him she was 17. They spent Saturday together and then went to church on Sunday morning. Sunday after church, Sally made arrangements to go home with Eddie to Vineland and then catch a bus from there to Camden. Carol had agreed she'd be fine on her own. She'd actually come across some friends with a car who could probably give her a lift. Sally and Eddie spent all of Sunday together. Neither wanted the day to end, so it was after 11 p.m. when they headed out of Wildwood. And I am honestly finding this a bit fascinating. Do buses run that late in Jersey? With their leaving when they did, Sally would be getting on a bus for home at like midnight. 
Eddie was traveling with his high beams on, which is completely normal, but another car came towards them, so he turned the headlights down. Weinman says that this is a two-lane road, but she doesn't get more specific. I know some of the old double-lane roads here in the Midwest could be pretty narrow, as if the designers had no idea cars would someday be massive behemoths that would need a whole half a lane width or more to travel without the car spilling over into the other lane. So maybe that's why when Eddie dimmed his lights and was in the process of passing the oncoming car, he was somehow too far onto the shoulder. Quote, Just after midnight on Monday, August 18, 1952, the New Jersey State Police arrived on the scene of a four-vehicle highway accident. Eddie Baker had barreled into the back of a parked truck, owned by Jacob Benson, which proceeded to crash into another parked truck, owned by John Rifkin. The impact caused Rifkin's truck to be thrown into the highway, where it was hit again by the car directly behind Baker's Ford. A state trooper told the Wildwood leader that if the multi-car crash had happened three minutes later, it would probably have been more serious. That's because Benson's truck was about to be towed by Rifkin's truck, and both men were safely away from the vehicles when Baker plowed into them. Those three extra minutes saved the men's lives. Baker broke his left knee, needed 15 stitches to close a gash on his right arm, and was cut up and bruised. The car crash killed Sally Horner instantly. Rescue crews took more than two hours to free Sally's body from the wreckage. Her head had been crushed by the truck's tailgate, which had come through the windshield when the vehicles collided. The death certificate listed the cause of Sally's death as a fractured skull from a blow to the right side of her head. She'd broken her neck. Other mortal injuries included a crushed chest and internal injuries, as well as a right leg fracture above the knee. The coroner didn't bother to do an autopsy. The damage to her face was so severe that the state police felt Ella would be too traumatized to identify her daughter. Instead, Al Pinaro went to the morgue. The only way I knew it was Sally, he said, was because she had a scar on her leg. I couldn't tell from her face. End quote. Carol was awoken the next morning by her mother yelling for her to come to the phone. For those of you who can barely remember what a landline is, in the 1950s, there was often only one phone in a home which was physically attached to the wall, always by a cord, but sometimes the phone itself was mounted onto the wall. It was normally placed somewhere where everyone in the home could get to it, a hall or the living room. And there were no answering machines and no caller ID to tell you who had just called. You had to travel from anywhere you were in the house to get to the phone to answer it. People knew this, so, if they didn't get an immediate answer, they would let it ring for a while to give the other party time to make it to the phone. And ring. And ring. There was also a proper time you should be calling anyone. I'm sure people's ideas on this varied, but as a rough estimate, it was okay to phone between 9am and 9pm, with about an hour hiatus around 6pm to allow people to eat dinner in peace. I know, crazy, right? So, I have a hard time believing that Carol's mother answered the phone in the morning, heard an official-sounding man asking for her daughter, and didn't know who it was or what they wanted. Regardless, Carol went to the phone, and that very official-sounding man started asking her about Sally, her movements, and whereabouts the previous night. Carol must have been half asleep because she hung up on the man and immediately called Sally's house and asked for Sally. 
All she got from Ella were sobs and a partial understanding that Sally was dead. Quote, Things grew strange for Carol. She did not react right away to the death of her best friend. She got dressed, left the house, and went straight to the movie theater. I don't know what I saw. I don't know what outfit I wore. But when people wanted to talk to me, I went to the movies. Later, she understood she had gone into shock. End quote. Sally Horner's funeral took place four days after her death and was attended by more than 300 people, and was further crowded by the flowers sent from people who couldn't make it. Who the hell were these people? Her circle of trust was her mother, her sister, brother-in-law, niece, plus Carol. If you maybe add a few of the caregivers who watched over her between her rescue and her return home, you could maybe have 10 people. Also, possibly some locals coming in to support Sally's family, people from the church Sally went to. You've got, say, 25 people. Remember, the kids at school bullied her, and I'll bet their parents wouldn't have wanted them to be associated with a girl like that. 300 well-wishers is a lot of looky-loos and hypocrites. And look, people say funerals are for the living, not the dead, and that's mostly true. But if they were not for the dead, there would be no people writing end-of-life and specification of burial instructions into their health care directives, trusts, and wills. In this case, it didn't seem the funeral was for those who loved Sally. From what I know of them, they wanted to keep their private skeletons private. Having an extra 250 or so snoops hanging about does not seem like privacy. At least Sally's burial was more exclusive. Just immediate and a few extended members of the family attended. I think Sally would have liked that. With all those in attendance, it seems like Carol was the only one to really grieve. She had a very non-stoic reaction to seeing Sally in her coffin, which made most people around her very uncomfortable. Quote, She sat by herself in a corner pew. Ella and Susan requested the casket be opened at first for those who wished to pay their last respects to Sally. I wanted to see her so badly, and then I did, and it nearly broke me in half, Carol recalled. When she could no longer stand the proceedings, Carol fled the service and went home. Carol stayed away from school for an entire week after Sally's death. I couldn't handle it. This was the most heavy-duty thing I had ever gone through. Carol's first experience of deep loss would mark her for the rest of her life. As she grew older and friends began to die... Carol tended to grieve in an open and wild manner that puzzled those around her. I would hear, but they were just a friend. I would hear that about Sally, that we should be moving right along. I wasn't willing to move right along. I wanted to grieve. And when I finally came out of shock, I did. End quote. First, good on you, Carol. It's okay for other people to see your emotions, and you do not have to just get on with everything right away. Second, this reminds me of the McDonald case, known as the Jeffrey McDonald case, but it should be just the McDonald case or something that remembers Colette, Kristen, Kimberly, and not the man in prison for killing them. Getting to the point, both Colette's and Jeff's family were caught in this keep calm and carry on attitude. For the Stevens' side of things, no one ever talked about Colette's dad supposedly committing suicide. And the McDonald side just couldn't fathom why anyone would care about the violent murder of their sister-slash-daughter-in-law and her sweet children because, 
It was four years ago. In Sally's case, it is don't talk about your time with Frank LaSalle, and now that she's dead, don't cry. We put her in the ground, now let's go back to the daily grind. I mean, Jesus, listen to this quote. Frank LaSalle made his presence known to Sally Horner's family one final time. On the morning of her funeral, they discovered he had sent a spray of flowers. The Paneros insisted it not be displayed. End quote. I mean, just, ugh, that the man had the audacity to send those flowers? No surprise and notwithstanding. Sally's mother couldn't be the one to bar that bouquet from the entrance. No, that was her sis and husband, and they only insisted they not be displayed. Not thrown in the rubbish heap, not to a crisp or strewn all over the road so cars can run them over. Nope, just please, dear, let's not put them out, shall we? It would be ever so gauche. Carol and her very over-grieving was flaunting her defiance of taboo. But not talking about those things is how they all came to be standing in front of Sally's grave, lowering her into the ground. Let's fucking defy some taboo, why don't we? Sally's family got on with it. Diana, Sally's niece, who was four when Sally died, didn't learn that she had an aunt, let alone what had happened to her, until she was almost an adult. It was her father, Al, who told her, and his recitation was very brief. Diana learned more about Sally from the interviews with Sarah Weinman in 2014 and 2017 than from her own family. Frank LaSalle left more of an impression on the world than Sally did. We know nothing of what happened to the five girls Frank originally went to prison for. Much, much later in time, Ruth, the woman who finally convinced Sally to speak out against Frank and helped her call home, discovered that her daughter had been molested by Frank while they were living next door to one another. She had been five. A family who had met Frank and Sally while they were on a road trip with car trouble had let their daughter ride with Frank and Sally to retrieve a tow truck that at the time Frank was operating. The trip should have taken a half an hour or so, but when 90 minutes had passed and the grandfather had arrived to help, they all piled into his car and started in to find the child. They met Frank, Sally, and their daughter coming back in Frank's tow truck to the breakdown. Later, when the father saw the news about Frank's arrest in the papers, he called the police to offer the information, and he wanted to know if he should be worried about his own daughter. The police, nor the prosecution, ever called him back. Dorothy Dare was not quite 18 when she met Frank LaSalle, but she was 18 when she married him, so the union was legal. Their relationship produced one child, Madeline. When Dorothy left Frank, she told Madeline nothing about her biological father, that nothing continued until Madeline was grown and had children of her own. All Weinman says about the subject was that there was an article in the paper that made Dorothy feel she had to tell Madeline about Frank. This made Madeline curious, and she contacted him at the prison. For the last year of Frank's life, Madeline visited him, bringing her husband and her kids. Quote, For those last months, Madeline did not clutter her relationship with questions of what LaSalle had done to land him in prison. We talked, as father and daughter would talk, Madeline told me. There wasn't a strain. He was just dad. Truth be told, I never thought about whether he was guilty or not guilty. End quote. Between Dorothy's confession about Madeline's biological father and the visits with Frank, Madeline came out of that year with a very skewed version of what had happened. During an interview, Weinman started to ask Madeline about Sally's abduction. 
Madeline, however, did not let Wyman finish posing that question. Quote, That's not the way he described it to me, she said. She then proceeded to parrot the version LaSalle had presented in his appeals, a version the court had soundly rejected as fantasy. End quote. BT dubs, LaSalle did recant his confession and went back to the fantasy bullshit that he was originally claiming so he could file his appeals. Madeline had even offered to make a home for Frank should he be granted parole. That home would, of course, be the same one she held with her husband and children. But Frank, thank God, was not released. He died of arteriosclerosis on March 22, 1966. I said at the beginning of this tale, back in the first part of this two-parter, that the main source of information for this tale was Sarah Weinman's book, The Real Lolita. I also said that I wanted this to be about Sally and Sally's family and not about the potential connection to Lolita. That having been said, I think the worst part of this tale is that the story of Sally's life has not only fallen into obscurity, but that it has been usurped by the tale of Kubrick's vampette version of Lolita. In Kubrick's film, as with the 1997 adaptation, Lolita is a young seductress fairly fresh into her sexuality and very happy to use it to tempt men. This is a twisted warping of Nabokov's naive and innocent Lolita, who was definitely prepubescent and had no idea what men and women got up to, and was raped and mentally abused by a middle-aged pedophile. You can listen to the Ill Repute podcast for a fairly good discussion of this. Search in their 2018 season. Sally Horner was also innocent and naive, and Frank LaSalle stole that from her. What does this say about our society that we would rather remember a salacious story about a teen seductress than a cautionary tragedy about a girl who had her life stolen from her and a man who was allowed to roam free because statutory rape got him only 2.5 years in prison? Hashtag everything is shit. If you'd like to support the show, I will link the Patreon in the show notes. You can also comment and ask questions in the Patreon feed. No trolls, please. Also, like and subscribe on whatever platform you choose to listen. I will send you on your way with Chinchilla, and I'll talk to you later on It's All Relative. Say that again, not with the wrong bitch. So I heard you're back in town. And haven't changed a bit, man. You get off talking down to the little man. Time you get what you deserve. Wow. You're so fucking stupid. Been a while since my head was this polluted. Look.